0: All right. Good morning. Would you please uh, turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. We'll be looking from verse 5 through to the end of the chapter. If you would pray with me one more time. Heavenly Father, be gracious to us. Help me be faithful. Help us see Christ crucified, risen, crowned with glory and honor, able to help us even in our deepest need. In his name we pray. Amen. Abu Bakr raised his hand. He had one more question and he thought for sure this one was going to stump me. Some of you know that I've had the privilege and the opportunity by God's grace to uh, go to a number of uh, university campuses in this country over the last five years and have these open forum discussions, dialogues uh, with university students. And I'm remembering one particular interaction with this student named Abu Bakr, who came to this session and began with the usual set of questions uh, that most Muslims will ask. Is Jesus God? Do you believe that he's the son of God? Well, how can it be both? Where in the Bible does it say that Jesus is God? And I walked him through the answers to those questions from the scriptures. And then he went quiet for some time as I addressed other questions from the group there. And then this was the final question of that day as Abu Bakr raised his hand and he asked me this. If Jesus is really God, God Almighty, as you say He is, then why, how, why would God Almighty become a human being? And more than that, why would He die such a shameful death as you claim, dying on the cross? That's a very common question from our Muslim friends. When you talk to your Muslim friends about Jesus, and I really hope that you do that regularly, you are sure to face this question. It's a question that the early church faced because the gospel message of Christ crucified was scandalous, the shame and ignominy of it to the Greeks and to the Jews alike, a stumbling block. It's a question that's persisted throughout church history a question of Christian theology in the 11th century, uh, the great theologian Anselm wrote his work entitled, Cur Deus Homo, which means, in, from Latin, why did God become a man? Again, seeking to address this question. Well, we've seen that Jesus is God. He is the divine son. He is the one who is far above the angels. He is the creator and the Lord. The author of Hebrews has shown us that. And the question is, why would this high and exalted one, the one who is God himself, become a human being, mere flesh and blood like us? More than that, why would he suffer and die? That's the question that our author answers in today's passage. And it has huge implications for us, just as for the original Christians who heard it. You see, these people were suffering. They were under tremendous pressure and persecution for their faith. They faced tremendous shame for their faith in Jesus. And they were tempted to give up, to throw it all away, to abandon their faith in Christ and go back to their Jewish religion they faced questions like, can God really understand my suffering? Does He know what it's like to be me in this situation that I'm in? Does He know what it's like, the pressures I face in this sin-sick world? Friends, in our suffering, we face those same questions, don't we? Does God understand? And the humanity and death of the Son of God, gives us the answer to those questions. So this morning, as we see why God the Son took on flesh, why He became a man and suffered and bled and died, I pray that we will be filled afresh with boldness and with comfort to seek His help in our suffering as He leads us into glory. We're going to look at three purposes for which God the Son became a man and died in this passage. We're saying that God the Son, the one who is eternally God, took on our flesh, took on human nature, so that he became fully man, fully human in every way like us, while still remaining God, so that the person of Christ is fully God and fully man, and then he suffered and died on the cross. And the question we're going to see answered is, why? What was the purpose for this? We're going to see three purposes. And the first one is this. God the Son became a man and died to lead us into glory. To lead us into glory. This is in verses 5 and 13. It's our first purpose for His coming. And we'll spend most of our time under this heading today and then look at the remaining two more briefly. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. I told you last week that Hebrews is like a highway with two lanes, the lane of exposition, where he exposits the Scriptures and shows us how it's fulfilled in Christ, and the lane of exhortation, where he exhorts us unto greater faithfulness and obedience. Last week, we were in the lane of exhortation as the author pressed home the dangers of drifting from Christ. This week, he's shifting back into the lane of exposition, expositing to us the meaning of Scripture and how it's fulfilled in Christ. The author continues here his comparison with the angels that we saw in chapter one. He's going to take a slightly different turn. He's going to specifically expand the point that he made that the salvation that Jesus provides is greater than what the angels provide. To show us that he is pointing us backward to God's original creation design so that he can point us forward to the way things will be in the world to come. So he points us backward and cites Psalm 8. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. If you know the context of Psalm 8, which was read... Earlier as we started our service, the psalmist is enraptured, marveling at the glory of God's creation, and he feels this sense of smallness, insignificance as we consider how great God is as He's displayed His power in creation. You've probably felt that sense. Maybe you've been out in the desert at night and looked at the stars in the night sky, and you just think, wow. Look at the creator's handiwork. Or maybe you've seen online the pictures of galaxies untold in the far reaches of space through the Hubble telescope. And you feel the sense of smallness, of insignificance. Psalm 8 is speaking of that. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You see, in one sense, we seem insignificant, but we are incredibly significant because of God our maker. Psalm 8 itself is a commentary on Genesis chapters 1 and 2, on the original creation, that God has created us human beings in His image according to His likeness. He created us for His glory. He gave Adam and Eve dominion and authority rule he said let them have dominion over all things he created us to rule this world on his behalf that's what the psalm says we were made in rank just a little lower than the angels we were crowned with glory and honor all things placed under our feet so that we would rule but then something went wrong in the story of the bible in history We don't really see things under our control. We don't see this world in subjection to human beings in this way, do we? No, we live in a world of cancer and car accidents and COVID-19 where one microscopic virus has brought the whole world, all humanity to its knees. We live in a world with natural disasters, hurricanes, typhoons, earthquakes, floods, famines. We live in a world gone wrong, a world that is broken and we are helpless to fix it. That's what the author is telling us in verse eight. Look what he says. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. Yet at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. The world is fallen. It's not under our rule. All because of sin. In the story of Genesis, Adam and Eve sin against God, rebel against His command. And God responds by bringing judgment and putting this world under a curse so that it's not under our subjection the way it ought to be. But did you notice the author leaves us with a hint of hope? He says, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Him. There in verse 8, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Him. And there's a hint of hope in that word yet. It means that one day, things will be better. It means that sin, the fall, death, will not have the final word. God will set this world to right. And in the world to come, things will be in subjection to us. Creation will be in subjection to God's people. What's the guarantee of this? The guarantee of this is that even now we see. We see one who is crowned with glory and honor. We see one who rules over all creation. We see the one who became one of us, who suffered, who died, and through his suffering and death has entered into the world to come, into the future glory, fulfilling God's plan for us. Do you see that? Look at verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. We don't see this world yet fully set right. But we do see the one who has done everything necessary to make things right. We see Jesus. Jesus has inaugurated the world to come. Jesus is crowned with glory and honor as God's king over the new creation, over the glorious new heavenly world that is coming. And here's what the author wants us to see. Jesus has been crowned with glory and honor. He rules as as king because, verse 9, because of the suffering of death. That is why, though God the Son has been God for all eternity over the angels from eternity past, as we saw in chapter 1, this is why He became flesh, took on human nature, became a man for a little while, for a temporary period, lived among us on earth lower than the angels. This is why He suffered and died. Because it's through his death that he inaugurates and enters the new heavenly world. And it's through his death that he paves the way for us to go there. Do you see that? Verse 9, by the grace of God, he tasted death for everyone. That's why it was necessary. That's why it was fitting for him to suffer and die. The author tells us that in verse 10. Look again at verse 10. For it was fitting that he that is God, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now far from being ridiculous or absurd, the incarnation and death of the Son of God was fitting, was appropriate. It was fitting in God's plan for God the Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, To become a man, to suffer and to die. Because through his death, he leads us, the many sons, into glory. Into the glory of God's new creation. And there are two aspects of Christ's relation to us by which he leads us into this glory. Two aspects of his relation to us by which he leads us. First, he leads us into glory as our forerunner as our forerunner. And second, he leads us into glory as our brother. Let's look at each of those. The author tells us here that it was fitting for Jesus to suffer because he is the founder of our salvation, leading many sons into glory. Now that word founder means, in the original language, someone who goes ahead to establish something. For others to follow. It is used in the Greek Old Testament to refer to the spies who went ahead of the people into the promised land. It, it means that someone is a pioneer, a forerunner, a trailblazer. So verse 10 is telling us that God the Father has a plan to bring many sons to glory. That's us who believe in Christ. He's bringing us to glory. What is this glory? It is the world to come. It is God's heavenly kingdom. Speaking of heaven. God the Father is bringing us into that glory, into that salvation. And Jesus, God the Son, has been appointed as the founder, the pioneer, the trailblazer, the forerunner of this salvation, this entry into glory for us. July 20th, 1969 was a very significant day in the history of the human race. Maybe you know the significance of that date. It's the day when Neil Armstrong set foot on the moon as the first human being to go there. With these words, that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. With his... First step on the moon, Armstrong became a trailblazer, a pioneer who went where no human being has gone before. And as he landed on the lunar surface, he recognized that he was representing us. One giant leap for mankind. He was being a pioneer for others to follow. And that's a picture of what Jesus has done. Except what Jesus has done is far, far greater. By his suffering and his death, he has gone ahead. He has taken one giant leap for us as a forerunner into the glorious heavenly kingdom, the world to come, into which all who believe him will follow. Now, what does it mean in verse 10 that God made Jesus perfect? It says, it was fitting that God made the founder of their salvation perfect through sufferings. It doesn't mean that he was imperfect. It doesn't mean that he was sinful or lacking in any way. That would be a misinterpretation. No, it means that Jesus, by his suffering, throughout his life, lived in obedience as the incarnate Son of God, as the Son of God made flesh, completed, brought to completion the life of perfect obedience to God that we could never live. And thus made a way into God's glory, God's perfect kingdom for us. See, the whole story of the Bible is this, that we need an obedient human representative who will stand for us. One who would be human like us, who would be perfect in every way, who would accomplish salvation for us. And that's what we see in Jesus He lived in perfect obedience, completing His mission, bringing perfection for us. His perfect life, His suffering, His death was the only way for us to follow into glory. His death was the only way to renew, to fix this broken world. His death was the only way to make sinners right with God, for us to be adopted as sons and daughters by God the Father and have the promise of glory. Jesus has bridged the gap between us and God and he has paved the pathway for us to enter into God's heavenly world. And that's amazing when you think of it. When you realize this world, friends, is not our home. If you're in Christ, this is not your home. Dear Christian, don't you feel weary Don't you feel weighed down and tired? Just sick with life in this messed up world. With all its sickness, with all its sin, another natural disaster, another war, another day filled with injustice, another loved one dies, another unexpected loss. Dear brother or sister, you will one day in Christ and through Him, be free from the tyranny of this broken world. When God will renew all things and His glorious world to come will swallow up this broken world. And even now in our suffering, the author of Hebrews lifts our eyes to see Jesus. To see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. The one who has made the way for us into the world to come. Do you see him? Do you see your Savior and your Lord? Do you look forward to that day when he will welcome you into glory? Into his heavenly kingdom? And there will be no more sorrow. And he himself will wipe every tear from our eyes. In Christ we look forward to something greater. We have an inheritance of glory, and the pathway to that glory, dear friends, is suffering. See, as one pastor said, our mindset should not be, oh, you know, I'll just suffer now, and I'll wait one day, there'll be glory later. No, this suffering is the very thing that is preparing you for that glory. I don't know what suffering you're going through this morning, your brother or sister, whether it's the loss of a dear loved one, or if it's injustice and mistreatment at your workplace, the pain of being misunderstood or misrepresented, the pain of a friend's betrayal, some constant physical ailment that's afflicting you, uh, a struggle with mental health, Depression, know what that's like. Whatever suffering you're facing, maybe it's just the suffering of uncertainty, the trials of life in this world. Whatever it is, I know it's hard. These past two years have been so hard for all of us. But Jesus knows. Jesus understands what you're going through. Because he went through it first. And it's by his suffering that Jesus has entered into glory and he's leading us there. You see, as one pastor said, we are not defined by our suffering, but by his. His suffering ensures that our suffering works in us to prepare us for glory. Suffering in Christ becomes the pathway of sanctification, of growing in holiness, and it becomes the pathway to eternal glory. So he prepares us for glory as our forerunner. Not only does he lead us into this glory as our forerunner, but he also leads us into this glory as our brother. He leads us into glory as our brother. So Jesus, God the Son, became a man, entered our suffering, entered our sorrow, lived our experience to make us His family, the family of God. And because we are His family, He is not ashamed of us. That's what it says in verses 11 to 13, which we'll be looking at now. The only way for lowly and sinful human beings like us to be a part of God's family is if God Himself came to us became one of us and brought us to himself you see what it says in jesus in verse 11 it says the one who sanctifies that's jesus he's the one who sanctifies he saves us from our sin makes us pure makes us fit to enter god's presence and those being sanctified that's us the ones who are growing in this holiness are all from one source. It means we, sh- we are one family. Because Jesus became human, when we believe in Him, we share in the same family. That's what it means. The Son of God identified with us. He became one of us. He counts us who believe in Him as His brothers and sisters. He is not ashamed of us. Think about that. We who are mere creatures... Creatures of the dust subject to decay and death. We who are fallen and so sinful and so broken. We who are so guilty and wretched. We might think that this glorious son would not want to associate with lowly, wretched sinners like us in any way. No. No, He has taken on our flesh And He calls us His brothers and sisters. He is not ashamed of you, dear Christian. Maybe you've had that painful experience of shame, where you've been put to shame by someone who meant a lot to you. You know, I knew a sister in Christ. uh, As she was growing up, her mother regularly told her, I'm so ashamed of you. I saw the devastating effect that that had on her psyche for years and years to be healed from those painful words. Maybe you've heard words like that uttered to you. Maybe you just feel the shame of your own sin, your own failure, your own weakness. If you're part of His family, you're not shameful to Jesus. God the Son is not ashamed of you. He calls you brother or sister. In fact, He so identifies with us that He participates with us as we gather for worship. The the author quotes Old Testament passages here from Psalm 22 and Isaiah 8 to show us how Jesus identifies with us as our brother. Psalm 22, if you know that psalm, the first half of the psalm talks about his suffering as the Messiah and his crucifixion and death. The second half of the psalm moves into a triumphant tone depicting his resurrection And what he declares upon his resurrection and deliverance from death. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. That's here, that's right now, that's this morning. Jesus joins us as we gather as a congregation, as we congregate around God's throne. And when we gather here, we get a preview, a foretaste of the glory that is coming. We are lifted up into that world to come. Each Sunday morning as we meet together, as we gather for worship as a family, and when we gather in Jesus' name, he himself is among us. That's what verse 12 is saying. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. Jesus is our brother, and he is our worship leader when we gather for corporate worship. He's in the midst of the congregation as we sing God's praise, as we lift our voices each week in corporate worship. We are lifted up into this heavenly kingdom in a preview and a foretaste of the glorious day when we'll be all united as a family with Him face to face forever. And then in verse 13, the author quotes Isaiah. He quotes Isaiah saying, Again, I will put my trust in Him. Behold, I and the children God has given me. You see, in Isaiah's generation, Isaiah and those who trusted the Lord, who believed in God's word, were a minority. And they stood by faith, faithfully, while the entire nation and the whole world was against them. And the author takes these words from Isaiah, puts it on the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ to show that all of his life on earth, Jesus lived by faith. Perfectly trusting God's plan, Perfectly trusting God's promises till he died on the cross, achieving our salvation, making us children of God. And we are the family of faith with whom he stands, the children of God of whom Jesus is not ashamed. Behold, I and the children God has given me. And brothers and sisters, if he is not ashamed of us, then we must not be ashamed of him. See, that's the point the author is making here implicitly. Remember the context. These people were facing suffering, persecution, shame for following Jesus. And they were tempted to deny him. They were tempted to be ashamed of him. And the author says, Jesus isn't ashamed of you. He knows our suffering. He knows our weakness. He lived it. He lived by faith, just like us, and so should we. So I want to ask you this morning, are there areas in your life where you are ashamed of Jesus? At your workplace, are you ashamed of your Christian faith to stand for Christ? When you have that conversation with someone and they ask you a little bit more about your faith or about the church or about other things, Do you feel ashamed and try to change the subject and get out of that conversation lest it turn awkward? Teenagers, I want to speak to you this morning. Are you ashamed of Jesus when you're with your friends and you want to fit in with the crowd? Do you feel ashamed of your faith in Christ? I want to speak to some of you here who maybe have been attending ECC for a long time. You've been professing faith in Christ for a long time, but you've never taken the step of being baptized or becoming a member of the church because you're afraid of the shame that you would face in your community, the rejection that you would face from your family and friends. No, it's time. It's time, dear friend. If you are following Jesus, you must identify with Him and be baptized. He's not ashamed of us. We must not be ashamed of Him. So in our suffering, in our sorrow, in our pain, we can lift our eyes to Jesus. He came into this world, suffered, and died for us. He is not ashamed for us, and He's the one who leads us as sons and daughters of God, as His own brothers and sisters of Christ, into the world to come. As C.S. Lewis famously said, the Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. That's the first purpose of His coming. Now we're going to look at the second purpose of His becoming a man and dying, that we see in this text. Not only did God the Son become a man and die to lead us into glory, but secondly, He became a man and died to rescue us from slavery. Look at verses 14 to 16. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. So here's the second purpose of Jesus' coming. In order to lead us into glory, he had to rescue us from slavery. See, the whole human race, all of us are under slavery. We come into this world as slaves, slaves to Satan, sin, and death. Do You see, again and again, he mentions here the power of death, verse 14. The fear of death, verse 15. We are subject to lifelong slavery. Death is the great chain by which the devil binds the human race and holds us under his power in darkness. Death is the ever-present, all-consuming reality. It is always near. It places its icy cold grip on our hearts. It's a reality that consumes us all. The grave is always open, always hungry, always seeking more victims. This is why we try to escape it, don't we? through pleasure and the pursuits of life, we try to push death out of the way, push it into the peripheries of our mind, but it's always there lurking about, this is why we wear our seatbelts when we drive, this is why your heart rate increases just a little bit when you're on Sheikh Zayed Road and someone comes up right uh, behind you with their lights flashing, this is why you feel nervous on an aircraft when there's turbulence this is why we go to the doctors for every sickness and ailment and we spend so much of our money on insurance and all of those things, death is the ever present reality. It's the issue that philosophers cannot sufficiently deal with. It's the fact that science cannot entirely explain. It's the worldview question that every religion seeks to answer. It's the master that rules us all and binds us all in fear. We don't need to be saved just from sorrow, just from suffering. No, we need to be saved from this great enemy, death We need to be saved from its bondage over our lives that holds us chained all of life and then leaves us standing in judgment before Almighty God, standing condemned and with no escape. And the devil uses death as a rod to beat us, to mock us, to taunt us, In the garden, he lied to our first parents, Adam and Eve, saying, you will not surely die if you sin against God. And then as soon as they eat, he turns around, points the finger in accusation, just like he points his finger at you and I, saying, guilty. And we will stand in judgment. And that's why we fear death. How could we be freed? How shall we be freed? Well, that's what the author tells us here. Jesus became flesh and blood. Jesus died to destroy Satan and his works and to deliver us from the fear of death. You see, the author is using language reminiscent of the Exodus, where the people of Israel, the children of Abraham, were in slavery under this evil Pharaoh, and they cried out to God, and God heard their cry. And he defeated Pharaoh, destroyed him, and delivered his people from slavery. And just like God delivered his people in the Exodus, the author tells us, Jesus destroys the devil, delivers us into freedom. He helps the offspring of Abraham, verse 16. And we are the offspring of Abraham. We are the children of Abraham by faith, all who believe in Christ, become a part of his family. So how does he do it? See, the devil is an enemy so great and so powerful that only God could defeat him. God himself must destroy this powerful enemy. And yet God has promised, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that one would come from the human race. There would be an offspring of the woman who would come who would crush the serpent's head. For human beings to have victory over the devil, the one who defeats him must be a human being, must be one of us. And so Jesus comes, the one who is fully God, became a man, became one of us, shared in our flesh and blood, suffered and died. And by his death, he destroys Satan and delivers us. You know, uh, we are following this conflict between Ukraine and Russia. And you should be praying about that. Keep our brothers and sisters and those nations in your prayers. But uh, a lot of people have been posting on social media and I saw uh, this news article and, and a couple of pictures uh, which really caught my attention. Uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, was offered by the United States evacuation. They offered to evacuate him from the country. And he responded saying, "No. He denied evacuation. He said, "The fight is here. I need ammunition, not a ride." And then there was this picture on social media of him, you know, wearing uniform, dressed as a soldier, ready to fight for his people alongside his people. Friends, that's a great picture of what the Son of God did for us. He didn't leave us languishing. He entered the fight. He took on our flesh and blood, fully human in every way. He lived the entire experience of human life and he conquered our foe. Hallelujah for the cross. He delivered us from slavery to the devil, delivers us from slavery to the fear of death. He defeated the devil and sin and death by his own death on the cross. He won the victory. Hallelujah for Christ. Are you... Fearful of death, dear friend? Does it have its cold, icy grip on your trembling heart? Dear Christian brother or sister, you are free from that fear by the blood of Christ. Children, I want to speak to the kids here. Are you afraid of death? Does death scare you? You can be free from that fear, dear child, in Christ you come to Jesus, this marvelous Savior, this great conqueror. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, you fear death and you rightly fear death because after death comes judgment. Though you try, might try to escape it, you know, but I want to tell you that you can be free from the fear of death by trusting in Christ. And so I plead with you to come to him repent of your sins turn to Jesus the only one who can free you the question that it raises is why why was it necessary for God the Son our Lord Jesus Christ to die to destroy the devil and defeat death why did he have to die to do this and why is death such a frightening prospect in the first place Why did Jesus have to die to defeat it? The answer is because of sin. And that leads us to our third reason that God the Son became a man and died. He became a man and died to lead us into glory. He became a man and died to rescue us from slavery. And finally, He came and died to help us by His mercy. Look at verses 17 and 18. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Why did God the Son become a man and suffer and die? To save us from our sin. You see, our ultimate problem is not death Not even the devil. Our ultimate problem, you and I, is God Himself. Because we have sinned against a holy, awesome God. And we deserve His righteous judgment, we deserve condemnation. We deserve to face His wrath and fury and everlasting punishment. He stands against us in judgment. That's what makes death so terrifying because we know that after death comes judgment. And the only way out, the only way for us to be saved from the penalty and punishment of our sin is if God Himself would act to pay the price for sin. By providing a perfect sacrifice that would take away our sins. A substitutionary sacrifice that would turn away His wrath. You see, at the cross, God saves us from God. And that's why God the Son, in the perfect plan of God the Father, became a man. He became a man so that he could represent us as our great high priest. You might remember uh, the book of Leviticus uh, that we looked together at last year where the mediator between man man and God, appointed by God, was the high priest. He was one of the people appointed by God to represent the people, to make sacrifice for sin, to draw near to God. Jesus became a man so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest. Better than any old high priest because he was without sin. The only one who could mediate between us and God. Jesus became a man so that he could be our representative and our substitute. So that he could offer himself as our substitute. So that he could make propitiation there. You see that word, verse 17? To make propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation is a very, very important biblical and theological word, and you should know what it means. Propitiation means to offer a sacrifice that turns away wrath and that takes away sin. In propitiation, we are speaking of a sacrifice that turns away wrath and takes away sin. And what we're seeing here is that God has provided this propitiation In the perfect sacrifice of Christ, God propitiates his own wrath and takes away our sin. Only the one who is fully man and fully God could do this. He had to be a man to be our representative, to offer the sacrifice. He had to be a man to be our substitute, to stand in our place. But only God could bear the infinite wrath and punishment that we deserve, that was due to us, Only God could pay such an infinite price of the judgment for our sins. And so God the Son became a man, took on our flesh, suffered and died as our substitute, taking upon himself the judgment that we deserve, fully absorbing the wrath of God, turning it away from us, taking away our sin so that we might receive mercy. And if you've never had Jesus as your representative, your substitute, come to him today. Come to him and receive mercy. Come to him and receive his help. He rose again from the dead, defeating Satan, sin and death. And he is now and forever our high priest, able to help us in our greatest need. You remember the original context, these People were struggling, they were suffering, they were under pressure to throw it all away, to abandon their faith. They were being tempted. And the author reminds them and reminds us, Jesus understands. Jesus has been in your shoes. He knows how you are suffering. He knows how you are struggling. He himself was tempted yet without sin. And He will help you even now. Kids, I want to speak to you. Jesus knows what it's like to be in your shoes. He lived the full spectrum of human life. He's been a child like you. He knows your struggles, your temptations, your questions. Friends, for all of us, Jesus knows what it's like. And so whatever you're facing with the voice of faith, we can cry out, Jesus, help, help. There is so much mercy. There is so much mercy. His heart overflows with mercy to help those who are suffering and being tempted. He is able to help you. He is able to help you even now the one who died for you, the one who shed his blood for you, is praying for you. And he will keep you to the end. No matter how far you've wandered, no matter how unworthy you feel, no matter how much you've sinned, no matter how much you're being tempted, Jesus Understands. Jesus sympathizes. Jesus forgives. Jesus welcomes you. Jesus is praying for you. I want to close with us reciting together the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism. It's a beautiful statement saturated with biblical truth that reminds us of what Christ has accomplished for us so the way that we'll do this I will state the question and together we will recite the answer may these words go deep into our souls what is your only comfort what is your only comfort in life and in death let's read this together that I with body and soul both in life and in death am not my own but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with His precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and redeemed me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my Father in heaven not a hair can fall from my head. Yeah, that all things must work together for my salvation. Wherefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing And ready henceforth to live unto Him. Brothers and sisters, may we live unto our glorious Redeemer. Amen.